This is Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. And for once, we're in the same room. That's because we're coming off covering two weeks of political conventions back to back. We've been powered through these weeks by coffee, donuts. Celeste, you've lost your voice in the name of journalism, telling truth to the people. Uh, I've got to say, I feel pretty rough, but it's it's been amazing, hasn't it? I mean, as journalists, we often use the word historic when something quite small happens. These two weeks have felt packed with things that truly have been historic. I mean, when, when Donald Trump became the nominee officially, that felt like a huge moment to me. You know, the kind of thing that people will talk about in 50 years time when talking about American politics. This week, Hillary Clinton, first female nominee of a major party. And and today we're talking on a day when the Republican nominee seemed to invite a bunch of Russian hackers to try and get hold of Hillary Clinton's emails while she was Secretary of State. And that's not even the biggest story that's happened today, as far as I can see. It's been extraordinary, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've uh, I've covered a few of these things in my day, and I have to say that this is really, you know, from Cleveland to here in Philadelphia, just an amazing couple of weeks. And just, you know, from everything from the protests to the, the floor fights to the, the the sort of chaos, the disunity on, on uh, you know, on both sides of the aisle here, just really amazing to see and to hear and to to be inside this kind of weird convention bubble and and see all this stuff firsthand. It's it's truly wild. That's right. And I think when the history of all this is written in 10, 15, 20 years' time, it'll all seem quite neat. But when you're right up close watching it, it does feel kind of messy, doesn't it? Um, are, are you, you've been to a bunch of these beforehand. I've been... Uh, these are my first conventions that I've attended. I've watched them on TV from a distance in the past. That gives you a very different impression of what's going on. You went around Cleveland with a mic to give our listeners a kind of feel for what it was like to actually be there, right? Yeah, and it was pretty amazing. So let's just say this isn't my first election as a reporter. I've been doing this since 2004. Bush, Obama, McCain, Romney, Obama again. All of that was amazing in some cases historic. Here at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, Hillary Clinton just made history again by becoming the first woman to claim a major party nomination. But this year's Republican National Convention with Donald Trump? Well, I'd never experienced anything quite like that before. Answer my question or I'm done. Conventions in the modern age are made for TV events. From the opening gavel to the roar at the end of the nominee's big acceptance speech, this week-long spectacle is as carefully scripted as the Academy Awards. Usually. Donald Trump has turned presidential politics on its head. From the media to the politicos, many people called the idea of him running for president a cosmic joke. He proved them wrong. Trump cut through a field of more than a dozen rivals to reach the big stage in Cleveland and take up his party's standard. Friends, delegates, and fellow Americans, I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. But before he actually got to speak those magic words, the run-up to Trump's big acceptance speech was peppered with unscripted moments of infighting and sheer chaos. Like any good Trump show, The drama kicked in on the very first day of the event. 
The entire world watched as pro- and anti-Trump forces fought over whether to have a roll-call vote on the rules governing the convention. It was loud and chaotic and sometimes angry. Among those enraged at the outcome was Eric Miner, an anti-Trump delegate from Washington State. His impromptu press conference right on the convention floor caused such a traffic jam that eventually the cops stepped in to break it up. Everybody involved with the RNC that was involved with that travesty should be ashamed of themselves. Absolutely shameful. They went way out of their way to prevent a roll call vote to see what the real what the real vote was. Why would you be afraid of taking an actual accurate vote to see whether we want the rules up or down? What, where does that happen? Does that happen in America? And that was just for starters. Melania Trump had her defenders even before that plagiarism episode last week. But in the aftermath, a Trump speechwriter took the fall for her Obama-like remarks and the, quote, confusion and hysteria they had caused. One person who stood up against Mrs. Trump's critics was Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York. He ran for the GOP nomination himself back in 2008, and he gave his own fiery speech in Cleveland the same day Melania Trump took the stage. What happened to there's no black America, there's no white America, there is just America! What happened to it? Where did it go? How has it flown away? What I did for New York Donald Trump will do for America. I sat down with Mayor Giuliani in Cleveland. We discussed not only the dust-up over Mrs. Trump, but also the campaign at large. I thought Mrs. Trump's speech was quite poetic, quite beautiful. I thought her expressions about her parents were roughly the same as what I would say about my parents. I was blessed to have two good parents. And I think they were kind of almost generic comments. They're the kind of comments that people make when they have two good parents. And I think in a way, it's nice that both Mrs. Obama and Mrs. Trump love their parents so much. (laughs) That's a good thing. No, but somebody let her deliver a speech like that that could raise the question. I mean, my goodness, you know, if it wasn't that, it'd be something else. Sure. They'd pick something else. Look, you give a speech. I, I thought last night I gave one of the greatest speeches of my life. I get a call from the New York Times telling me, um, why were you so emotional and why were you so this and why were you so that? I, I haven't been able to walk uh, two steps here or in New York without being told that's one of the best speeches I ever heard. So, look, I know, I know what political prejudice can do to the way you look at something. They were going to find something wrong with Mrs. Oh, Mrs. Uh, Trump's speech. If it wasn't that, it would have been something else. Um, so far, they haven't found anything wrong that I said in my speech. They, some people don't like the passion with which it was given, the New York Times. But maybe they'll find something wrong I said. I don't know. I may have. Uh, you can't give a perfect speech. You're going to say something that somebody's going to criticize, particularly from the political opposition. One thing Mayor Giuliani tried to do during his speech was to urge the Republican Party to unite behind Trump and focus on the ultimate goal beating Hillary Clinton in November. 
but Mayor, I mean, if you look at the campaign, I mean, I'm gonna, you know, you know me, I'm gonna work you over a little bit on this. You can work but, me over. Uh, you're talking about Trump, and you know, I'm saying, number one, some people think that he's no good on foreign policy, well, and some okay. people think he's so, scary. So uh, the reality is that uh, this is exactly what they thought of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and he probably was our best president on foreign policy in the last 50 years since he ended the Cold War without firing a shot. Uh, it turns out that Donald Trump knows a lot about the world by having done projects all over the world. It is true he's not a foreign policy expert, but I've found, because I've had occasion to brief him on at least three or four occasions on foreign policy matters, including the Middle East, Eastern Europe, that uh, he knows a great deal about it and is certainly willing uh, to continue to learn more about it. I think it's more important that he have the negotiating skills of a Ronald Reagan. I mean, President Obama knew nothing about foreign policy when he became president and has no negotiating skills. But I also think he does know the world. He's been around the world. He's traveled the world, uh, which, for example, for, uh, President Bush uh, 43 hadn't done as much as, let's say, Donald Trump. Uh, Obama didn't travel the world anywhere near as much as Trump has traveled the world. Obama had been in about three or four countries before he became president. Yeah, but Mayor, speaking of, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna mention, uh, you know, President or the President's Bush, they're not at this convention. I mean, what does that say about the party? There are people that are staying away from this convention, well, what and it, you know, it's because of some of the rhetoric here. Mm -hmm. uh, the last poll that I saw said 30 to 32 percent of Democrats will not vote for Hillary Clinton. The last poll I saw said 4 percent of blacks would vote for Donald Trump. The day before Trump was to accept the nomination, the last primary rival he defeated, Ted Cruz, sent the convention into yet more chaos. Cruz got booed by Trump supporters for refusing to formally endorse him from the podium at the Quicken Loans Arena. The delegation from New York was not happy with him at all. If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience, vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution. I appreciate the enthusiasm of the New York delegation. The ironic thing about all of this, or one of the ironies, was that Cleveland had braced for mass protests and even possible violence of the kind seen at Trump rallies across the country. Yes, there were some protests, sure. But they were mainly peaceful, and actually pretty small compared to the demonstrations here in Philadelphia. The police only made a handful of arrests. And aside from some road closures and checkpoints, the kinds of things you might see at any high-security event, the city of Cleveland functioned remarkably well even with Donald Trump around. So in a way, Trump, the chaos candidate, almost seemed to generate more bad feelings inside his own party than outside the convention bubble. And that held true even among his supporters after the Ted Cruz incident. It wouldn't have been a Trump show without a big helping of drama and plenty of plot twists. And it certainly gave us all of that. Whatever you think about him, Donald Trump is really not like any other U.S. presidential candidate, at least in my experience. 
Some people say Donald Trump rewrote the playbook on how to run for president. But sometimes, as was the case at the Republican National Convention, it seemed like he didn't really have one. But if conventions are like the candidates they're supposed to sell, looking back, maybe this year's RNC ended up being pretty much exactly what we should have expected. Thanks, Cleveland. So Celeste is a veteran of a lot of American political conventions. For me, this has been a new experience. These are the first two I've attended in person. The differences between them have been really striking. Before they began, the expectation was the Republicans would be more raucous and the Democrats a bit more orderly. But it didn't always feel that way here in Philadelphia. A lot of Bernie Sanders delegates arrived convinced they could still somehow wrestle the nomination away from Hillary Clinton. Even those who didn't believe that wanted to use the occasion to protest against Hillary Clinton, against the DNC, against the system. There was a 50-foot inflatable joint with Burn the DNC carried through downtown. Burn, written B-E-R-N. People wandered around outside the arena where the speeches were taking place with their mouths taped up. While Tim Kaine was speaking to the convention, someone sitting in the top tier of the arena near where I was unfurled a banner with democracy written with a question mark on it. Some people in the tier below grabbed the bottom of that banner, which was flapping above their heads, and tore it until it just read democracy. Democrats have a lot more delegates than Republicans do, so they filled the arena to the roof. Because it's such a big crowd, it can be hard to get their attention. Lines about Black Lives Matter, marriage equality, and pretty much anything praising teachers has done that. And the big speakers, Michelle Obama, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, have got a great reception. But there have also been some jarring moments, like when someone who was in Twin Towers on 9-11 told her story, and the crowd just kind of kept chattering to each other, waiting for the main event later. I was catastrophically burned over 82% of my body. My chances of survival next to zero. These are made-for-TV events, which means the audience that matters most isn't actually in the room. But it matters whether the crowd boos or claps or is just indifferent, because that comes across on TV. On day one here, there were plenty of boos when Hillary Clinton's name was mentioned. Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine want to build an economy that works for everyone, not just the people at the top. That only really quietened down when Sarah Silverman told them to be quiet, which is another sign of the importance of non-politicians in this election cycle. To the Bernie or Bust people, you're being ridiculous. Up until that point, it looked like the Bernie supporters might really sabotage the party's own nominee by jeering her name whenever it was mentioned. And we have got to elect Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine. Then, the Clinton and Sanders campaigns got together and managed to shut most of the discord between the delegates down, present a united front, something the Republicans were not able to do last week. At one point on day three, when there were some boos from one delegation, I think it was Oregon from what I could see where I was sitting, the organizers actually turned the lights off on their section in the crowd, so it was impossible for the TV cameras to see them. Lots of delegates and congressmen I've run into have made jokes about how the Democratic Party's conventions are always kind of a bit shambolic because Democrats just do like to protest. 
But in reality, the Democratic Party now seems more disciplined, more ruthless than the Republicans are. It's not just the discipline. Rewind a few decades, and Republicans like to claim they were the party of sunny optimism. Judging by the conventions alone, the Democrats are now the Morning in America party. I stand before you again tonight, after almost two terms as your president, to tell you I am more optimistic about the future of America than ever before. The people on stage here in Philadelphia just seem to like the country they want to govern more than the people who were on stage in Cleveland last week did. One last thought. If you put the mothers of the Black Lives Matter movement or 11-year-old Carla Ortiz, who talked about her fear that her mother might be deported, on stage at the Republican National Convention, I'd fear for their safety. If you put Dana White of UFC, who addressed the Republicans, or Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio on stage in Philadelphia, they'd be pelted with water bottles and howled off stage. Democrats heard from immigrant children whose parents were at risk of deportation. Republicans heard from people whose family members had been killed by immigrants. Democrats heard from African-American mothers whose sons had been shot by policemen. Pretty much the easiest way to get a standing ovation at the Republican convention was to say pointedly that all lives matter. This divide worries me. A former administration official who worked on foreign policy told me yesterday he thought American politics was turning Middle Eastern, that each side doesn't just want to win, they think the other lot can't form a legitimate government. The most memorable three words in Cleveland, lock her up, were the clearest expression of this. I hope he's wrong, but I'm not completely sure that he is. At Independence Hall, a few miles away from here, they still have the chair that George Washington sat in while presiding over the Constitutional Convention. It had a gold sun carved on its back, which is a little bit faded and rubbed off now. James Madison records that Ben Franklin is saying about this sun, I've often looked at that behind the president without being able to tell whether it was rising or setting. But now I know that it's rising. Democrats have been the Rising Sun Party in Philadelphia. Republicans were the Setting Sun Party in Cleveland. We'll find out which way the country sees that carving on Washington's chair in November. That's it for this week. Join us in another two weeks on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts for another episode of Special Relationship. I'm at John Prado on Twitter. Celeste is at CelesteCatsNYC. You can also leave us a rating or a review in iTunes. We read those too. Thanks so much for listening. I'm glad to see you in person, John. I know, it's been great. It's been fun to be in the same room. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike. I'm John Prado at The Economist. See you next time.